Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we put out on the internet. Uh, go to focuscompounding.com to get access to investment write-ups uh, from Jeff. Uh, if you like free content on investing topics, we do have a free content section of focuscompounding.com. Uh, follow me on Twitter at focuscompound. That's the best place to get everything that we put out into the investment universe. And then, of course, if you're interested in learning more about our money management services, uh, reach out to me at andrewatfocuscompounding.com. And of course, you could click that invest with us section at focusedcompounding.com. Uh, so Jeff, last week's pod or two weeks ago, the podcast that we uploaded on Moat, uh, the amount of people that have said it's one of our best podcasts ever recorded uh, was kind of off the charts. When I was editing it, I knew it was going to be a good one because I felt like it was very in-depth. Uh, but it was the first time in... I don't want to say a long time, but a good amount of time that a lot of people acknowledged that it was probably one of the better podcasts that uh, we've done. Um, why do you think that is? I think they like the topic for one thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the topic of moats, the topic of... I mean, I think we talked about moat and durability much more at like almost the product level, right. uh, which I think is a little bit different because... In write-ups and when you see these pitches or whatever about these companies, it seems like they'll just say, oh, return on invested capital is 20%. It's been 20% for some time, so the company has a moat. But I feel like we actually like really went and broke down what that means, like what the moat was or where it comes from, and then talked about just different sources of moat within the actual business itself. Yeah, a lot of uh, things about moat usually give just kind of the theoretical... Uh, list of them, right? You know, um, economies of scale, network effects, um, you know, uh, the barriers to entry, the different examples, you know, they're very short on examples, right? Or if they give examples, they're always the exact same examples. So we probably gave more examples of actual products and companies that we could think of, right? That may be mm -hmm. part of it too, to help people out that way. I, I would agree with that. Um, but so in today's podcast, we actually are going to continue on with that, we did use some buzzwords or different uh, lingo last week, and we will continue on with that. But before uh, we get to that, we could talk about currently where we are in the markets. S&P 500 down 17%. The 10-year yield, 2.818%. Uh, uh, crude oil, $97. Natural gas, 9 spot, 305 Have you seen the move wow. in natural gas no, over the I past? I was on vacation, so it's moved about $3 since <laughs> It's moved a lot. Yeah. I mean, if you look at like the chart, it just reminded me of um, like, you know, remember, oh, is the U.S. economy or the U.S. stock market going to be a V-shaped bottom back in like 2020 when the market cla uh, crashed? But natural gas, yeah. I mean, it, it sold off a heavy amount and then is that it's back weather? up to basically all-time high, uh, recent highs. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you could always find different weather. reasons. Yeah. We've had hotter than normal. It's been very hot. In, the, in large parts of the country, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then Russia announced that they're turning their capacity to Europe for gas down to like 20%. Mm -hmm. So they're, it was at 40% and they're bringing it down to 20% again. 
So I think maybe just like speculation on that or quants trading all these different things. Uh, yeah, it's drove the price up a pretty good amount, which is, I mean, just staggering the moves in natural gas. I mean, it's just pretty crazy. Absolutely crazy. The range, the, how much it moves and the dollar amount of those moves. Like if you follow the futures and what like one tick, uh, represents and like dollar value and stuff. I mean, these are just very, very levered products. It's pretty crazy. Um, so since last time we recorded, Netflix announced that Microsoft will become their exclusive partner um, as they prepare to launch an ad-supported plan for their customers. So I was curious. We've spoken a lot about Netflix and streaming and stuff like that. I was curious to hear what your thoughts are on this. And, and quite frankly, I thought it'd be interesting. Do you think eventually maybe Microsoft would be interested in acquiring Netflix. I mean, maybe if they weren't trying or going through the process of acquiring Activision, maybe they would be buying them right now or maybe not. But what are your thoughts on uh, Microsoft and Netflix partnering together for an ad deal? Well, I think, no, they will not buy them because for one, I don't think they'd be allowed to buy them. But two, I just don't think, I mean, they have a, a games business, but that's not really what Microsoft does. Uh, I think it might not have been a bad idea a long time ago to get more involved in those things. My guess is that it has to do with independence. So I think we talked about this before. Um, there was talk about what companies were trying to uh, approach Netflix with the idea that they could help them with their online advertising. And uh, many of the obvious choices would be disqualified because they feel that there's too much uh, danger of their businesses overlapping. So for instance, it's not realistically a business that Google could do. Google has expertise in it, but they can't do it for other people because they have YouTube. So it, we talk about this a lot in advertising. It's a conflict of interest issue. That's why you have in, uh, you know, at, you use ad agencies and things like that. And uh, Microsoft is surprisingly more independent than the other companies that have expertise on online advertising. Um, and it's been a part of their business for a very long time that they wanted to do more in, I think. Independent how? Uh, I don't think they're viewed as a threat as a media operator, right? So I think, unfortunately, companies that have a lot of expertise on it, examples would be Facebook and Google that have some of the best knowledge of these things, uh, can't operate businesses for anyone else, can't deal with them, can't be allowed to see how the business works on the inside. I don't think they would get very far. I mean, I think they would talk to them, but I think that they wouldn't be willing to give them the information they need. Um, just like it might make things like mergers and stuff less likely because they just want to provide enough information and the due diligence for it. Um, you know, that's even true with things when we talk about Twitter, who can Twitter work with to improve things about their company? Um, they probably wouldn't give away a lot of information about how their business works to certain companies that could help them. So I think Microsoft could be a more valuable, uh, partner not just for Netflix, but actually for lots of other media companies. Because a lot of media companies would like to have to partner with someone who they don't view as a media company. And Microsoft has media businesses. I mean, it, it does have a search engine and it does have um, a games business. But for the most part, I think it would be viewed much more favorably than other companies that would be uh, capable of doing something on this scale. So, I mean, not just for... Netflix, but companies like Netflix, 
But also you need things for Hulu, Disney Plus, um, all those uh, companies that whether it's Paramount or anyone else who wants to launch tiers that have ads and don't have ads, um, they need to work with different companies and they would be cautious to deal in any way with certain companies, I think. Um, there's some companies that may also have wanted to partner with them, but probably don't have the capabilities in place to do it very quickly. So I think there are other companies that are even more independent and that would be capable of doing it given enough time. But I think Netflix might be trying to move kind of fast on this. And that's probably what disqualified some other companies from doing it. There's other tech companies that would be very capable, but, uh, and, and, and less of a conflict of interest issue than Microsoft. But I think they'd be too slow. It's not proven yet. So do you think fast because of their publicly traded company and subscriber growth is slowing? which has killed their stock. I mean, fast because they're looking to pivot for Wall Street. Um, I think yeah, it's what are your thoughts on that? I don't know. From what I've re- you know, there's not a lot of information coming out, but from what little things I've read and about it, I think it might be more internally driven by something that they're seeing. I think that there's some sort of trends that they're seeing that Facebook is seeing um, and others that go beyond what a snap that go beyond what is just what wall street's con uh, well it is what wall street's concerned about but it wouldn't just be that their stock prices are down and wall street's reacting badly to subscriber declines it has to be something more that they're seeing about customer behavior that's making them think a little differently customer behavior i mean what would you hypothesize on that netflix has really um good predictive analytics, um, tons of high frequency data on how customers behave in terms of what they're watching, how long they watch it for, um, really, really good stuff that way. Then that would be helpful when they go to an advertising model, but it may also reveal to them certain, um, declines. I think Facebook's the exact same thing. They have very good data on stuff they don't disclose, uh, or disclose a little bit of that concerns them probably with the quality of the viewership rather than the actual quantity numbers they're hitting. So I think they're probably seeing greater deterioration in engagement rather than deterioration just in subscriber numbers. Wall Street gets the subscriber numbers. I think this has been true for Facebook for a while that they're acutely aware of uh, a lack of engagement beyond the metrics that they provide to Wall Street. And those are probably leading indicators of eventual subscriber churn. And Netflix is probably aware of the possibility of losing customers over time of not being that sticky because of something going wrong with engagement levels which may be a difference between short form stuff and other things there's um there's some companies that do nielsen type stuff of trying to track information about netflix by surveying things and then surveying things and information generally um that would be more helpful like if you know when, when netflix goes to advertising um and some of that has always shown that Netflix is used in a somewhat different way than other uh, media things. And it's maybe not a great comparison of releasing or dropping a movie on Netflix versus putting it out in theaters in terms of the way in which people engage with it. Like we've always known that the engagement level for watching in one sitting is very poor, Uh, really, really bad. And it's a question is why is that? And what does that mean? Uh, does that mean that people are really going to watch something and then splitting it up over two days or more and that they're doing that for some convenience reason? Or does it mean that the level of engagement that they have with it, their interest levels in it is really poor 
versus if they went out and saw it in a movie theater or watched it in linear TV. And there's probably some aspect of it to which it means that the engagement is poor. Um, and that's a major factor with whether a subscription business works or an ad business. If you have weaker engagement, an ad business works better. Um, like, so this has always been the argument with HBO, for instance. It's not that important what HBO's ratings are for a show. HBO's job historically, you know, until HBO Max, was simply to have subscribers. And so they made decisions based on how many subscribers they have. If they knew that canceling our list causes a decline in subscribers, then they shouldn't do it, even if that uh, show is not winning awards for them or is not getting great ratings or is not working for most people watching the channel. Uh, there are other things that might be doing really well, but that they don't think would affect their subscription levels that much. And so the problem with something like an HBO or Netflix or, or whatever, if it's going on a 100% subscriber basis, is that it needs to keep you from canceling in between things coming out. And they need to have a good understanding of that. A lot of that stuff goes away if you go to an advertising-based approach. And and also, if you go to an advertising-based approach, then there can be more segmentation demographically that you can be comfortable with because obviously it's more valuable to the extent that it's demographically, psychographically, et cetera, um, uh, segmented. So some some shows can be more valuable because they can target certain groups and be more effective as advertising. Whereas other shows might be less effective for advertising purposes, but reach a very large audience. So I think a lot of these companies that are all these companies that are online have very good information about the way in which people engage with their content. And they are probably very aware of the differences in how certain things uh, how how valuable certain content is for them. Um, Netflix gets a lot of attention for uh, programming like Stranger Things. You know, uh, that's a mm -hmm. very highly rated thing. It's assumed to be. It's in surveys that aren't even done by Netflix. It's assumed that's watched by a large number of people. But that also has an engagement level that's probably strong in a way that some other content does not. And I think they'll ha there will be a better understanding of that over time on Wall Street as they shift to ad-supported things. With things like Facebook, uh, Meta, and Snap, because they are advertising-based businesses, really, and they understand that about themselves, I think they were probably faster to see what was happening. Uh, like to, to, I shouldn't say see what was happening, but to react to it. Netflix was probably well aware of what was happening, but um, they may not have been as aware of, of um, as quick to make moves in their business model, right? Their business model was working well for them. But I think probably a lot of things about Netflix has changed more than we think over a period of time in that, you've had a probably large decline in certain um, certain ways in which people engage uh, with your service into more automatic types of engagement, which the companies um, encourage itself by the way that it's handled things in, in terms of how that they've laid out the service and how they've automated certain things in suggesting different things to you and how quickly it does certain things and 
shifts and all sorts of different um just to auto playing things and picking um clips of video to show you and changing uh title art and things like that um a lot of that is already moving in a direction that makes a lot more sense as an ad supported business that doesn't make much sense as a subscriber supported business if you were already an investor in netflix and they were making such a shift in their business like this i mean is this something that would concern you or you would immediately sell the stock because now they're doing different things and that's not what you originally invested in the company uh like the premise has changed um what would you be thinking if you were a current holder in netflix well there's sort of three way three things to think about with it um one is the difference between they're doing something that's a big shift versus what do we already know about what the issues are so the fact that they are thinking about shifting to a big part of it being ad supported um if we didn't know anything else would be concerning that's new information that'd be really concerning but given that i think you could see for years a real change in how netflix is used and and how it's programmed i think that i think the shift to advertising is pretty exciting uh, and is very logical given what Netflix is. I think that's a really good uh, uh, possibility. Netflix is very close to linear TV as compared to many of these other services we talk about. It, it's probably closer to it than uh, any of the others. It has a huge amount of programming, a lot of lower quality programming, a wide uh, selection of things that people might watch to kill time. It's it's a lot closer to um basic cable network, TV things, ad, uh, advertiser-supported things of the past. So it just makes a ton of sense to do that. And it's something where a lot of technology could be used to be really exciting in terms of what their ad revenue could be and in terms of the possibilities of uh, improving it over time, tweaking things and improving things and using a lot of the skills that Netflix has on um, because of the ability the the granularity of the detail that it ha that it has and can have on the people viewing it is much greater than a broadcast network was so it has a lot of things as an advertising um, supported thing that would be very exciting the bigger issue for me always with Netflix has been the supply side and I think that this pivot in part is driven by the supply side Netflix talks about it Wall Street talks about it as if the issue is that Netflix faces greater and greater competition from other streaming services like HBO Max and Disney. I don't believe that's the issue. HBO Max, Disney, those companies, um, Disney with the merger with Fox, which involves Hulu through that way, uh, those things all are bigger threats to supply. Um, so the hostility of Netflix with other people in the Hollywood ecosystem, you know, other players, is more of the issue long-term that is a problem and i think that's a serious problem uh because of the ability so of, how does that play out like what do you do well it's a problem that netflix has a problem that amazon has if you don't play nicely with those companies then you're you're going to have to go it alone and you're going to be locked out of a lot of supply so you're going to not have access to lots of content that people want um, having said that, you know, HBO doesn't have access to content that Disney has. Disney doesn't to HBO. Same with uh, Paramount. But they have set up 
things over a long period of time, have libraries, have IP, that allows them uh, better opportunities to supply themselves. Where Netflix is, you know, has Netflix and Amazon, uh, and, you know, and Apple um, have less in the way of being able to supply themselves with quality content for the masses. They occasionally have had some stuff that's successful, but in terms of the amount of money that they've spent versus what they've been able to do with that, it's it's not terrific. So I don't want to put the cart before the horse, but I mean, the topic of today's podcast is actually thinking through different ways to judge a company's bargaining power with its suppliers. Um, so in this situation, it sounds like you're saying the movie studios are the ones that hold all the bargaining power with the streamers. Yeah, definitely. What leads you to believe that? Is that just from knowing the industry and how it's been over the past, you know, since film has been a thing? I mean, what are some things that make you believe that that's true? Uh, I think people have no problem with signing up for a bunch of different services or seeing a bunch of different content seeking out. The, the it, You would have a lot of bargaining power if for some reason they only wanted you and no one else. So if people were only willing to sign up for one service, that would be absolutely true. Uh, the problem is that everyone's willing to sign up for several services. Everyone is willing to watch a Warner Brothers movie and a Paramount movie and a Disney movie on consecutive weekends and not pay any attention to the fact they're produced by different companies, distributed by different companies. Uh, a lot of people don't know which company owns which distribution service. It doesn't matter to them. Um, so they don't have no problem with subscribing to combinations of services to get what they want. That could be different from other people. Um, there are huge economies of scale in the distribution side, giant economies. They're even bigger in, in streaming and online than they were before then. And they were already the biggest economies of scale in the industry is on the distribution side. But, the problem with that has always been, unless you're something like that brief period we had with cable um, TV, where your actual cable company in the area, the, the cable system, was able to put together a package for you, you are able to put together your own package. So there was never anything stopping you over the air from putting together a package of your favorite channels, which did not involve just watching one. There's nothing stopping you now from putting together a package of channels, which includes Amazon because you're an Amazon customer, includes, you know, Peacock because you happen to like certain things that are on there, um, includes Hulu because people in your family need to get content that's this, this, and this. Um, and so I, I think that you're all, it tends to go to the highest bidder that way. The problem with Netflix, of course, is even if they're the highest bidder, I don't think they, I mean, they wouldn't get access to lots of stuff. And probably Amazon's the same way. So how does that work through the system? Like, how does that play out? It's just, uh, I guess, just knowing that the movie studios hold all the bargaining power and there's nothing that Netflix can really do about it other than have their own content that they create themselves. Yeah. So Netflix has a lot of bargaining power, potentially. It has money. It has guaranteed distribution. So basically, you can underwrite things, especially certain content genres, whatever, that others don't focus on as much. Netflix could potentially have a lot of power in other countries. Uh, they could have a lot of bargaining power in uh, localizing content. So buying content in one that was originally intended for one part of the world and um, dubbing it and, and showing it in other parts of the world, remaking things that were made for one part of the world, and now you're making a different version for other parts of the world. Um, so you take something that worked well in one place and do that somewhere else. Uh, 
developing contacts in countries where there isn't as much of a presence from Hollywood, for instance, to buy local content and then ship it around the world. Um, I mean, Netflix can do things that have almost never been done with Hollywood studios, like take content which is successful in one place and uh, will be successful in a lot of other places, but not in the United States. That's something that because the movie business and the TV business, um, uh, online TV stuff that we've seen is so dominated by us centric companies. Netflix is a us company, but it will be doing so much business around the world that co-productions with things around the world, um, is a real possibility. Yeah. Um, and they can do lots of things where they control stuff, even though the actual production isn't controlled by them. So a lot of that is they officially would be called like a co-production. Um, but I think there's a lot they can do that way. Now they're not in certain places as you know. Um, so there, that will always be an issue for them that there are certain countries that are not in certain markets they can't be in. But I don't even know if that matters as much because over time, you know, like China's now become pretty less important. Obviously Russia too um, have become, they used to be very big markets for Hollywood movies and they aren't anymore really. Uh Um, China's not releasing, allowing the release of a lot of movies that were intended to be shown there. And, and obviously have that with Russia. Russia was actually a pretty hungry market for U S movies for a long time. Interesting. Anyway, so we will get back to uh, talking about uh, companies' bargaining power here in a second. But before we do that, we had some questions that were sent in from listeners. And to be able to send in your question that we will queue and pull for the pod, uh, email them to me at andredfocuscompound.com. And really what I try to do is I try to pull the questions that I think will help out um, the most amount of people. If it's more of a one-on-one question, I may not pull it, but if it's something that's broad uh, and I think it's, you know, a lot of people are asking this question or it's on their mind, I I will pull it for the pod. Uh, But somebody asked, he says, I'm a year out of college and new to stock picking slash value investing. Are there any books slash online courses you recommend I get started with? Love all your advice on profitability ratios and macroeconomic trends to look for in companies but I am wanting to build a stronger foundation and general knowledge before focusing too closely on specifics. So I'll let you start with that. And then I have some thoughts as well. Okay. Uh, I would recommend doing a bunch of books that you might find one that is more your style. So there's nothing wrong with picking, uh, I wouldn't pick one and say, this is what everyone should read. So even if I pick one that I say, this is the one that I think would be right for the most people. Sometimes it's going to be, this just doesn't interest you that much. And something you read in a different one does. Uh, For me, the ones I would recommend to people, because I think they're fairly easy to read and give you a lot of different examples of approaches in value investing would be the intelligent investor. You can be a stock market genius uh, common stocks and uncommon profits. And there's always something to do. I also think that people could read a Buffett biography and the easiest and shortest one to do for that would be, uh, American capitalist. So that over snowball, is that because it's much more about his business career, American capitalist, the making of an American capitalist. Right. And it's just, uh, just as a first thing to tell people, you know, I don't even know if the Buffett approach will 
be something that uh, a lot of value investors that clicks with a lot of value investors. For some, it does, and for some, it doesn't. Not everyone's a Buffett type investor, you know. Um, same thing with Graham. I would recommend that one book. There's other things if that interests you, then you can read that are a little different. Uh, Phil Fisher, I would recommend that one thing. Uh, I also actually would recommend um, either the Peter Lynch books, but one up on Wall Street is fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say the Peter Lynch books. If I could talk to young Andrew, the advice that I personally would give is don't read any investing books first. Don't read any books on business. First set of books that you should start to read to get more comfortable with would be accounting books. So it sounds like he says, I'm a year out of college and new to stock picking slash value investing. So, um, you know, what I would do is I would get a better understanding of accounting first. And then from there, I would go and read a couple of investing books. Uh, Peter Lynch book is great. Jeff mentioned, uh, the books by Benjamin Graham, The Intelligent Investor. That's also a good book as well. But I like the Peter Lynch books. You could be a stock market genius. Um, the Peter Kundo book, There's Always Something to Do, is great. But really, I think the best thing you need to do is first have an understanding of accounting and then have some sort of rational framework on how to think about stocks, which you could get from reading like the Warren Buffett Portfolio or Peter Lynch books. Um, really just how to think about securities and stock prices and the market. Um, and then from there, I would spend way more time just reading business books, not necessarily having to do anything with investing, but just business books to build your broad understanding of business in general. Uh, so I'm looking at my Kindle right now. I'm currently reading a book called Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A, mm -hmm. uh, which is all about uh, the chief marketing officer at Chick-fil-A. Look, I'm probably never going to be a chief marketing officer at any company, but reading how they grew Chick-fil-A into being the brand that it is today, that's very useful knowledge for being an investor. Uh, how Google works after Steve, um, all these books that just have to deal with business itself because you just build your, your, um, your database of a bunch of different companies and all of that is very relevant to investing. And I think a lot of people, and I think I fell into this bucket as well, probably before I uh, started working with Jeff is there's so much information that's on the internet that's involved in stocks that's in the filings where you almost feel like you're running around with your head cut off. And, um, Really, to focus in, I think you should just have an understanding of accounting, a certain framework that you should follow, and then from there, it is just building your database of knowledge. And you'd be surprised. I think when you start to learn about a bunch of different companies and reading through books and stuff like that, it's just it's all relevant. Um, I read a BlackBerry book, and we've spoken about that book on the podcast, uh, "Losing the Signal." And Jeff and I, I mean, we'll, the, we will probably never invest in BlackBerry, right? Mm -hmm. But there could be a situation in the future that reminds us of a BlackBerry uh, situation that could be relevant. I read, am I being too subtle, by Sam Zell, right? So here's an entrepreneur that made a lot of money in real estate. Uh, he did stuff in oil and gas. Um, and 
he actually said it best in his book. He says he reads five newspapers a day and he reads a book a week. And he said that he remembers everything he reads from the newspapers, but he said he doesn't remember anything he reads from the books until it's relevant. And mm-hmm. then he remembers it. So I don't know. Like I just think a good way to build your investing knowledge is have a good understanding of accounting. So you could read what's going on in the company, have a certain framework that makes sense to you. So Jeff spoke about, you know, a Warren Buffett framework, um, uh, you know, a certain way to think about investing. Uh, and then from there, I just think you should spend all the time you possibly can just going wide as possible and learning about as many different companies as you possibly can. And I think books are a good way to do that. I mean, on my list, uh, the next book I want to read is one uh, about Charles Schwab. And I'm looking at my whiteboard right now. There's one about, um, it's called The Box, how the shipping container made, and I put dot, dot, dot. I, I cut off the yeah. title. But just building your, your, your knowledge base of as many different business situations as possible. I think that's a good way to become a better investor and just kind of uh, pursue ahead. Yeah, I think something we don't talk enough about is the importance of uh, specific things that you study yourself and draw the conclusions from rather than an overall theory, a book that presents it that way. So people ask a question like, how do I learn about net nets? And they want to read the best book on net nets. And that's fine. But the truth is, if we talk about Tandy, and Tandy was a net net at one time, where we talk about um, whatever different company at a point in which it was a net net or the history of that, you're going to get more from thinking about that and studying it that way than from reading a book that has a general theory about it. Uh, because these are each ones are sort of case studies for you in how to think about it. So the reading the BlackBerry book combined with other books like that, you get an overall thought for investing in technology companies rather than reading a book, which most people do. That's like how to invest in tech stocks. Um, and that's why I like ones that are people's entire careers, whether that's literal business biographies, a biography of the business or biography of the person. And even the ones we recommended are almost more like, uh, investor biographies. Just it's the interesting thing is not just whether they were great investors or not, but just they spent a lot of years investing, and there's a lot of chapters on what it was like when they did that. So there's more for you to take away than a book that really presents one idea and then, you know, has it that kind of outline fleshed out with a lot of examples to uh, turn what could be like a magazine article or whatever into a book size thing. And a lot of investing things are that they promise some sort of system or something, even the ones that we're talking about with value investing, which are very, uh, not very sensational. They're still like, what kind of investor are you? What is your right approach to do it? And they're going to take a Buffett approach uh, or a Graham approach, a statistical approach or a qualitative approach or whatever. And these sorts of things that you get from reading into these stories are often better for people. They're also often better for recall. Um, whether it's the most correct way of educating people or not, you're going to remember these stories about these people investing in these things and it working out for better or worse, much better than if you read books that are kind of more uh, theory-based ways of doing that. So you're going to remember the story of Buffett and why he sold out of a GSE because of what he saw in their bond portfolio. And that's going to stick in your mind more for him telling that story than just ideas about moral hazard or mission creep or whatever that you could read about in some textbook, you know? And you'll probably remember that story more so as like a general thing as opposed to him 
laying out, oh, I think the bond portfolio was going to do this and it's right. yielding this percentage and blah, blah, blah. I think so many people are just looking for formulas is what I'm basically trying to say. Right. Yep. Absolutely true. Absolutely. And so I, I like all the ideas you gave with uh, what you have with uh, those books in that, that you like pick out what specific books you're interested in reading next. And they're about specific people, specific companies, uh, specific times, things like that, instead of uh, some big theory of how uh, to invest. Because everyone, th th what this question is about is, you know, about in terms of the time of uh, how long being in, interested in investing and starting to do this. I, I get a lot from people, almost always they, at this point that you're at here in this email question, um, they tend to find something, like some theory or whatever early on in their search and latch onto that, even though they may abandon it later, like they get really into one particular approach and go really far with that idea. Um, often just because it's the first thing they read that made some sense and that, you mm -hmm. know, was really interesting to them and they wanted something to find something, you know? Uh, and you know, that can work for Buffett. That was early on getting really interested in Ben Graham and his approach making a lot of sense. And that worked for him applying that approach for the better part of a decade um, until he started to think, oh, about some other sort of tweaks to that. But I get that a lot where certain people in that who've been investing about that long, they get really interested in one specific way of doing it and sort of applying the same idea, seeing everything through the, I should say, seeing everything through the same lens, you know, and uh, not as a holistic sort of approach across all of thinking about business, you know, uh, and how things relate together of investing, but just th through this one way of looking at it, you know? So if they, if you read security analysis and you love security analysis, the, the second edition or something, you're really looking at it through an approach that made a ton of sense in the 1930s and even made a lot of sense in the 1950s. And in some will be very hard to apply, uh, you know, some years in some countries and, and others will be easier, but you start to look at everything through that way, even though probably... Uh, the author of that book wouldn't say take that approach in all those times. And if he was writing the textbook in a different time, would have thought of different things to talk about. But that becomes like, oh, I can apply this approach and it becomes your style that you take on from someone else. Uh, I think over time, what happens to more people that I talk to is they come up with a style that's their own from a few different things that they learned about and they form it more instead of um, what happens with people early on is they can become almost ideological about some specific subset of the value investing you know school of thought uh, and they really zero in on applying that idea all the time and and that's how they think very dogmatically you can almost tell what books they've read and loved and stuff um early on and when they're in the middle ages of their uh, investing experience uh you get less of that it's more about oh well, over time i learned from this or this of their experience that kind of shaped them more into what works and what doesn't for them what do you think is the best route to go? I mean, are you against being a spinoff only investor or being a net net only investor? Or, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Nope, not against any of those. It, what I'm against for people is when I talk to them, get an idea of who they are and I get an idea of what approach they're talking about. Sometimes you can tell they don't match. So uh, you, it, there's not a polite way to say this really, but sometimes you want to say to them, sometimes you want to say to them, well, this idea makes sense. 
you know, and you're capable of being a, a smart person doing this kind of investing thing. But what you've chosen is really not a good match for your style. You've picked the wrong genre to focus on for you. You know, um, if you're if you're someone who's really into like if you're talking to someone and they're really into politics and reading a ton of newspapers and uh, macroeconomic things and all of this that is on their mind all the time. So they're always focused on those things just in the background that's there. But then they see, oh, the Ben Graham approach really makes sense to me, buying these cheap things that, you know, something will happen and it'll work out. That sounds good, but I realize when talking to someone like that, they're always going to come up with a reason not to buy and to get in and out at the wrong times because they're not going to just buy some basket of things in Japan at some time. They're going to try to focus in on the exact right moment to buy in Japan, the exact right moment to buy in the UK, the exact right moment to be in oil and gas and whatever. And they're going to have all these ideas about that instead of a, an approach which basically was meant for focusing in on things that statistically, if you think of it as sort of the base rate, the base rate is good for this uh, bet that you're making. And then you just make a bunch of them in a lot of different places. And you don't worry about, yes, something could happen where all these internet companies or all these oil and gas or all these whatever things could fall apart. But if you make these bets over a career in a lot of different countries and a lot of different industries, whatever, the super cheap thing that average that's really cheap versus his average past earnings and is just a decent enough business works out for like a bank gram. And he didn't worry about, oh, I'm smart enough to predict the future of this or that. That So someone who has that kind of thinking might want to approach things differently and might even want to focus more on things that I would caution a lot of people away from. Uh, it really depends on the person and how, how good they are at... at um, a lot of it depends on your uh, intellectual diet, just in terms of like what you read and listen to and think about. And if that matches up well with how you can invest, then you're okay. But if you have a diet of the kinds of things you consume that doesn't match up well with your approach, that can be a problem. The other one can be there is some stuff that you can tell pretty early when talking to someone about their attitudes towards risk. Um, and... It's a little bit more complicated than that. the The big things are attitudes towards risk and uh, t towards their and towards kind of the ideas like agency. Their feeling of how they are responsible or not responsible for actions they take and how it turns out and how they feel about it. Um, there are certain people who uh, have such a problem with with making mistakes of their own and accepting that they made a mistake on their own that cost them that even though the overall approach will be successful, they'd really rather be right more frequently and make less money mm -hmm. than to use an approach that will be successful but will occasionally make them look stupid or something like that. And you get an idea very early on with someone's personality of what works for them and what doesn't. And so if you're obsessed with like a, a Ben Graham or a Warren Buffett or a Phil Fisher, one thing to keep in mind at times when you're reading those books to write down is how are they different from you? When do they say something where you go, oh, that's totally different from how I think and how the kind of person I am and where they sort of the same. And if there's a lot of personality overlap with someone and their approach, then that's a good marriage of an approach with your personality that can work over a lifetime. 
And then you're just going to get more knowledgeable about it and better able to apply it. But if you're trying to um, kind of copy a style of someone who's different from you in major ways, you need to be careful about that. And uh, some of the people that everyone looks up to in the value investing stuff are somewhat less emotional than the people who are, who are reading about them, for one thing. But they're also somewhat less... Um, they're somewhat more fixed in their approach than a lot of people reading them could be themselves. So they're a little bit more um, dedicated to carrying out something that isn't working, that they believe makes sense, even when everyone else is telling you that you're wrong. Um, that's probably the biggest one with even the most of the ones we mentioned with the, with the book suggestions I made. Those are people who often are pretty comfortable being told that they're wrong about stuff and still going ahead with it if it makes sense to them personally, as compared to a lot of the people I talk to um, and watch how they go with what they invest in and then eventually whether they sell out and at what points. Um, it can be hard to be told for so long that you're not right. Uh, and we talk about in this podcast a lot, but you know, even like a great investment Buffett makes in like a Washington Post or something, basically didn't look like a good investment for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And everyone forgets that later. But it didn't really go anywhere, you know? A lot of people are out of the stock before you get to the point where it becomes a great investment for him. So you have to be honest with yourself about that too. So I always say to people, actually, honestly, you were saying like, learn about accounting things. I think that's a great answer. To me, I always tell people like, you start picking your own stocks and buying them and actually making and losing money based on that in amounts that are material to you too. Not like I'm 90% in index fund and I pick some stocks on the side. That's my play money for whatever, because that won't yeah. feel like if you really want to be an investor, that's not going to be what that feels like as compared to your net worth moves a few percent uh, on a day because of decisions that you made, you know, someone announced something and it moves it that it's actually meaningful to you. Uh, Cause you may find that what you're reading and what you think you're going to apply is very different from what you actually start to do when you're managing money yourself and you have to look at those two things and that's something i think most of the people we're talking about are really good at they're much better judges of their own character than a lot of people i talk to so they'll say here's what i try to do and and all that but they'll also say here's where i can be stupid at times and here's the mistakes that i make all the time you know um and be aware of the kinds of mistakes that they might make all the time, the kinds of ideas that might apply a lot to them. Um, you know, Buffett will talk about if a stock starts to go up sometimes, you know, he should have kept buying it, but he didn't as one of the things that he talks about all the time. Um, that sounds like, oh, well, everyone says that kind of thing. Oh, that's just a common whatever. But you'll notice Buffett doesn't say I concentrated more in that stock than I should have. Which would be everywhere. Yeah. If people make a big mistake, that would be one of the most common things to say, oh, well, that's what I learned from it. He's never said that. And he concentrates a lot. So he knows that there are some things that he does that are probably not that smart. But then he does other things that are very unorthodox. But he doesn't say, well, I wasn't that smart about that. He obviously still believes in things. Uh, he doesn't let the fact that he made a big mistake in something Um lead him to go to a more orthodox position like a lot of people will because most people if you mess up in a way others don't what's going to happen is you're going to default more towards the conventional wisdom you, that's what you'll be pulled more towards immediately afterwards you see this with everybody who invests um if they do anything um it's, it's very rare for someone to have a 
bad experience and then come up with an idiosyncratic sort of answer to what they should do. So what usually happens is they go, oh, I was too concentrated or I wasn't concentrated enough or I traded too frequently or whatever, but they move towards the more accepted general thing that everyone says. What you rarely ever see them do is like they they look at it and say, you know what? I bought a bunch of retailers. I've lost money on all of them. I'm just never going to own a retail thing or I'm never going to own a um, uh, tech thing or whatever. You know, there's not usually... Um, and Buffett has bought retail things before, but he's kind of said that, like, you know, I don't know anything about that. And that I, we've managed to do, you know, not really do that great in that at times. Um, because that's c- kind of saying there's a whole thing you won't do uh, because of your experience there is very unusual. Whereas what most people do is no matter what, if you're going to get burned in something like this, you're probably going to move back towards the more common approach that everyone has. That's almost always what people do. So, uh, and you'll, you'll see that a lot and that might help with picking out the next thing that you do. You realize what things are just not for you. What I always say to people though, is like, you can tell if you're actually investing because of how you'll feel, or at least I find that to be true for most people I talk to. And certainly for myself, um, the approach won't feel right to you in the sense that you'll actually feel less comfortable with it because you're going to sleep each night with these stocks and, and, um, so a certain level of concentration in one thing or another, what industries you're in, how well you know the stocks, how quickly you're trading things, whatever will feel to you uncomfortable. And there'll be other approaches that feel more comfortable, literally just in terms of uh, your sleep and your thinking about it and your anxiousness about it or not. Is there an approach that you have taken that made you feel uncomfortable with it? as you were lying in bed at night. I mean, what are your thoughts towards that? I mean, cause I think Jeff, I think you're really good at uh, being very intellectually honest with yourself or self actualizing yourself. And I also think you're really good at psychoanalyzing other people as well. So I'm kind of curious, I mean, where does that come from? And uh, from your own experience, is there an approach that for whatever reason, it just did not resonate with your own chemical makeup? Yes, uh, being invested in too many stocks in small amounts. For me. Now, most people, that makes them feel more comfortable. For me, it didn't. Uh, now, this is complicated because I say that, and then people will say, like, well, but don't you, didn't you say you could diversify as much as you want in, like, Japanese net nets or merger arbitrage things or whatever? But to me, those are different in that you have to understand what factors you can reasonably understand about it in selecting it and then what decision you're making about it. It's not how many stocks you own that really matters. It's how much selection you're doing yourself. So what I mean is if I buy just like value stocks to me, because I'm not a quant, um, there's a lot of factors you could analyze about those and understand better. And I find it hard to follow all of them and understand everything that's going on with them. So just buying a bunch of low P uh, price to book, price to earnings type stocks for me uh, is difficult. And turning them over more, you know? So if I owned 25 stocks and I was turning them over uh, within a period of like two years, I'm, I'm getting out of them, you know? That to me is hard to do. I find that difficult. I can take some comfort in the stock's price, but I understand the competitive uh, dynamics and how different they are in each case. And it's hard to, I, I mean, I should say, I understand the importance of the competitive dynamics and that I could lose a lot of money in this stock if I'm very wrong. And you hope that, okay, well, I've picked some sort of representative sample, you know, 
so it won't matter. But you can see ones where you go, oh, this is this is not as risky a situation. This is a lot more risky. Um, whereas with things like the Japanese net nets or with certain merger arbitrage things, you can kind of figure out generally what uh, it would be as a group operation. And then you realize that you really can't apply much more individual selection of your own. So you realize that, and, and take an example, let's say Twitter. Twitter, uh, which we talked about, would never have been something that's easy to put in and say is like other merger arbitrage uh, investments. If you were doing something where merger arbitrage was your approach, that one would always stick out as this isn't really giving me, this is a, this is a very special kind of risk what I'm facing here. And it's different from other situations I'm used to. However, there's lots of other ones where that doesn't feel that way. It's hard to figure out which uh, case is much different from another. And so if you invest in all of them at a similar spread uh, that kind of fall within the same category, uh, then cherry picking which one doesn't make a lot of sense. And there are times where I'll say it doesn't really make a lot of sense to cherry pick one or the other to people. Um, you know, there's ones that I sometimes some companies I prefer a little bit more, a little bit less, but I, I don't really see the huge difference for it. Uh, so that's the example with the the um, the net nets and stuff that people always ask about where I say, look, I, if I could have bought 25 of them instead of five or whatever, and it didn't cost me more, you know, transaction costs and stuff, uh, then I would do that because I know nothing about them. But owning 25 US microcaps versus owning a smaller number of them and turning them over less uh, is hard for me because it's very hard to me. I, it's just something I'm very bad at to quantify situations in which you're getting a large qualitative or quantitative benefit that's offset to a significant extent, but maybe not fully on the other side. So what's really hard for me is this is a terrible, terrible business. It's going to uh, end in disaster, but it really is trading at two times PE. That's hard for me. Uh, likewise, it's an amazing business. I agree. It's amazing. I predict only beautiful things for it in the future, but it's at 70 times PE. Uh, people will sit down and mathematically try to figure those out. How bad does the business have to be for that two PE to be, uh, justified or more than justified? I can't do it. It's, it's really hard. That's getting to an extreme. That's too hard for me. I can't buy a 70 times PE stock, uh, 70 times record earnings, let's say, uh, even, knowing how much I like it and how much I predict growth in the future. I've never come across one where I could have strong confidence in the investment on that. In between those, it's a lot easier. So it's 15 times P, let's say, and it's a, a business that I have all sorts of confidence in the future. That is not difficult to do because you don't have a major offset on the other side. I don't have to enter into some difficult math that way of trying to figure out uh, you're basically getting an average type price and you just are assessing one side of it. Likewise, it's a perfectly decent business, but it's six times PE. This isn't a problem for me. I can do that. And I feel both those situations comfortable doing it. A lot of people invest in a lot of uh, areas that are too difficult for me because of the importance of quantifying pretty complex ideas about the future. Um, as you drift up to really expensive things, and really good outcomes. And as you drift down into the extremely bad possible outcomes, uh, it becomes hard, you know? So people bring me some banker insurance thing and stuff. And I'll say, look, the, the risk here is significantly higher 
I don't know exactly how much higher, but the risk of failure is, let's say, at least 10 times higher than most of the ones I'm looking at in this category. Of course, there's a price at which that fully justifies that. But if a normal rate of bank failure or, or needing to recapitalize insurer or something is X, this is way more than 10X. And we both agree on that. You know, Those are hard for me uh, because it's very difficult to quantify that in a way that you work into the price. But that's how most write-ups are done, you know, that they work those in. I just find the math involved in them very difficult and, and pretty arbitrary for me to grasp. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've spoken about that before. I mean, you had told me that if you were me, you would never focus on spinoffs because I've said that I'm the type where... I yeah. know I could have like 10 or 20 bets, but I'm not the type that wants to wake up and see like down 40% or something happen right. and just kind of write it off as well. You know, I'm spreading the bets around. Um, I'm probably much more lazier in the approach that I just want to invest in like a very great business and just not worry about the day-to-day -day movements or anything like that. Right. And I don't mind about the concentration of the loss being in one day or something. So that's a little bit more comfortable to me. Uh, so when people talk about headline risk, you know, I, to me, you know, if Netflix is down 75% over a period of, you know, a couple of years or it's down 75% in a day, it's the same thing, you know, um, it feels different to people, but it's, it's the same thing, you know? Um, yeah. And in particular, when I was talking to you about that, I think like merger arbitrage is something that's very bad for someone that, that, uh, approaches like what you're talking about psychologically, because, uh, you get, no positive reinforcement or very little positive reinforcement with um, merger arbitrage. Because yeah, Jeff, I need that positive reinforcement <laughs> because you're doing it, a good job. It just, uh, it goes as expected. So you look at the end of the year at your portfolio at how it did and you go, Oh, this is a really good outcome, but you never throughout the year get the, you go, yeah, I thought it was going to be a 30% annualized return when it would close there and it did this and whatever. And it was, but you don't get excited about it because the, the liquidation of that company was always in your mind planned for that. And that's basically what happened. You don't get the up, you never get, I mean, not never, but you really don't get the upside surprise. What you get is a lot of things closing with a profit. That's basically within the bounds of what you expected. And then the loss is never expected, you know? Mm -hmm. um, that's the thing now with bank things where uh, one of the ideas with the bank accounting is that you set aside expected losses on loans when you make them. Right. But this is a difficult concept because in general, this works a little different than certain other things. Most bankers and most things that they're trying to do are actually trying not to make loans on which they have an expected loss on that specific loan at all. In other words, they think that we wouldn't make the loan if we expect the loss to be at all. As a group thing and over a full cycle and stuff, you could maybe put things in that they would accept as a model for that. But it's kind of a confusing concept for them because each one individually, they don't plan to do that. Now, you know, credit card things and stuff. Sure. That's different. You know, this, this is an approach that might make a lot of sense for America's car mart where they can totally understand that. But for certain banks and certain things that they're doing, they'd be like, no, we know we're going to have losses because totally unexpected things are going to happen at times, or we're going to make mistakes or people aren't going to be as honest as we thought they were, or all these different things that will happen. But as a individual like category, we're not expecting Loss. We wouldn't, we don't make loans on which we expect a loss as a normal part of the business, which is different from very high risk uh, populations that you're lending to. Um, so the with that, you know, you have the some people really like that upside that they have from it on 
it, like I said, with the win frequency, right? That's one of the problems from the Buffett approach for people is that Buffett, since he invests so little and makes so much on the ones that do well, his batting average, while good, is not a series of little profits that you make over time, which feels a lot better to some people. Um, where to other people, having something on which you have a huge gain and you keep holding it for a long period of time might feel really good. Um, and and then with the other thing is like looking back at your own record, you can sometimes figure these things out. So I actually did that in an article where I looked back at, you know, does selling help me out? Um, and I found that it didn't. Uh, and I think that's generally been true with me. Do you think that comes from the types of companies you're investing in? Like you, you have said before that you are pretty good at getting the business itself right, um, like whether it's a very high quality company or not. So do you think if selling doesn't help you out as much, that's because you are just great at picking the business quality of a business and a flaw would be more so on the price side? Yes. Yeah. So I'm much, uh, so for me, you know, that you could say great at that or bad at the other or, or both, some combination of both, but I've been particularly bad at price and timing calculations. Um, and particularly good at, um, long-term business trajectory predictions. So it's turned out that my judgment about a business on an ongoing basis has been better than I would have expected starting out. And my prediction and my uh, ability to know when a price is too high or too low or to understand the timing of when things will happen in the market when it's recognized um, has been worse than expected. That's true. And what's what's scary about that is, like we mentioned in merger arbitrage, that's true even in merger arbitrage. What I realized is how I could make money in that is not through worrying too much about price and worrying too much about timing and, and um, those sorts of things, which are exactly what merger arbitrage is based on. And that's how everyone approaches it. The only way I could make money in that even was in recognizing business uh, judgment sort of discrepancies in which I felt that the market was not making distinctions between strong businesses in play and weak businesses in play, you know, unique assets that are valuable in the industry and everything and kind of ho-hum um, ones or ones that are particularly any sort of hiccup in the finance um, capital markets and stuff will, this deal will fall through. Uh, so I wasn't even good in, in that. It still relied on business judgment things, even net net things where I had success and failure relied more heavily on business judgment than I would have expected. I would have thought it has to do more with price and these different things that people say it does, but that actually wasn't true. Um, just being able to distinguish between businesses that will survive on an ongoing basis at a high rate versus ones that are really at risk turned out to be more the way to distinguish for me, even in super cheap stocks, how to do it. How do you think Buffett and Munger differ as investors? Well, Buffett is cheaper than Munger. There's no doubt about that. Buffett, I think, will also take less risk than Munger in some ways. Um, I don't think you'd want Munger running a, well, I don't know. I don't know if you'd want him running an insurance company. Uh, for, yeah. for, for two different reasons. I, I think their attitudes about some things with risk and stuff are a little different. Um, so that's one. Uh, and I, how so? Well, I think Munger is more willing to take extreme positions on that. So both taking extremely low risk and, uh, and also extremely high in certain situations in terms of, um, 
how much you'll bet in a given situation. Um, I think he would hold cash completely more than Buffett does at times, but I also think he would bet really big on individual situations more than Buffett does. Um, there's uh, some differences that way. I think that Munger is closer to the um, towards your like Kelly criterion, uh, fortunes formula sort of stuff. He's closer to pure expression of that than Buffett is. I, in some ways, they're both very cerebral, not very emotional people. But I, in some ways, I think Buffett is driven more by gut feeling than than Munger from very early age, probably. I think that as much as people talk about his interest in insurance and in statistics and probabilities of things and games of chance, he also has a feeling for some things overlaid on that more than people may recognize uh, about what risk feels like and how to approach it and what uh, I think he may not be as mathematical as people uh, think that way that although he feels he may be able to work out the math of the situation there are things that he has certain feelings about that i think maybe go beyond what munger would have i don't know so does that come from just knowing the business if it's not coming from like doing the math through it and like creating a formula or what do you mean by that i think he thinks a lot about what can go wrong and doomsday scenarios and things like that more than munger I think that's probably always been part of his makeup from an early time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could kind of see that. I mean, with Mugger investing in Alibaba, I mean, it's no secret that there's a lot of risk investing in China. And I don't think Buffett would... Well, I guess they do own BYD, though. Yeah, but that was one where, like... I mean, we don't know the whole... I think we know a lot of the story, but we don't know the whole story. But I think it was like Munger did everything possible to get him to buy it. He didn't want to buy it. They even did it through a different, um, he, I mean, I don't even, I believe I could be wrong. I believe right. That they did it through the energy instead of through the insurance portfolio, which could be any reason why they would do that. You know? So there's some legitimate reasons for, um, regulatory reasons and stuff that that might make sense. But even then I, I, it couldn't have, I don't see how that could possibly matter that it could ever come up as being significant. They don't need it from capital perspective. So, um, that almost could be another thing of like, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this through this way. I just get every feeling that Buffett was dragging his feet on the BYD one. And they, you know, they made a lot of money and stuff, but I just a very think, small investment too. Yeah. I don't think that's a Buffett uh, thing. They own a bit of Costco. I also think that's a Buffett dragging his feet on that uh, one. They certainly could have owned a lot more and stuff than they did back then. So Buffett has said that Munger is a lot more like Benjamin Graham than Munger thinks he is. Yes. What do you think that is? Does that have to do with his broad interest in other subjects? Yeah. Or yeah. is it more so as like an investor? Yeah. I mean, as an investor, I think their approaches are, are different. But I, I think that they're very, very similar in terms of a lot of things about the personality of what we know about them. Uh, broad interests, like you said. Um, very intellectual. Um I think fairly uninterested, Munger more interested than Graham certainly, but fairly uninterested with um, making a lot of money. Maybe interested in in making enough money, certainly Munger, um, but also I think Graham, in making enough money to do whatever they want to live um, 
you know, to live sort of like uh, some English gentleman scientist who's inherited some money and now can do his <laughs> experiments on on the diffusions of gas or, you know, botany yeah. or whatever. Uh, to get Benjamin to, Franklin way to life, right? Right, Benjamin Franklin, exactly. To get to yeah. that level, um, but not like Buffett to keep amassing wealth after that. Yeah. Graham definitely wasn't that interested in that. And, and Munger either. I think Munger to some extent was almost accidental in terms of how rich he got. I don't think his interest was to get quite as rich as he ended up being. Do you think that's because he was just and he had a lot of Berkshire stock and hitched his wagon to Buffett? Yes, he did smart things. He hitched his wagon to Buffett and he didn't interrupt compounding, you know, in, in some things that he was in. And the combination of those worked out really well. You know, and he understood like the story with Rick Gearin, right? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's probably a bit exaggerated. I think I imagine Rick Gearin still ended up fine in life. Um, it's just a huge story because, you know, he had to sell the stock to Buffett, which would be worth billions, but I'm sure he was still worth, right. if not hundreds, I mean, tens of millions are enough, you know, more than anyone would ever need or could spend in a couple of lifetimes. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, yeah, so I do think that Munger, I, I think for a long time, I think, think that Munger's worried less about investing things than people think and that Buffett worries about it more than people think. Yeah, you have said to me, and we've mentioned on the podcast, that you think Munger probably spent about 10 years of his life really focused on investing. Oh, as that being his primary, like, real everyday obsession? Yes, he spent 10 years of his life. I don't think he spent, I completely do not believe that he spent the rest of his life <laughs> thinking of himself as an investor, no. And he uh-huh. wanted to get out of it as soon as he, you know, like like Peter Lynch, basically, same length of time. But, you know, yeah. um, he just wanted to get right for his investors and stuff, but was like, okay, that's enough of that now that I've gotten rich. Yeah, I do think that's right. I I think Buffett is the bunger. I mean, Buffett's changed over time, too, and everything. But the munger of the period where he was running his partnership, Buffett's been that since he was uh, basically 18 to now, you know? Um, that's mm-hmm. the difference between them. Buffett did not see that as a brief career to have. Yeah, that was a lifetime, yeah. You think of Peter Lynch, Buffett Partnership, Munger, Joel Greenblatt, all these people, they're in it for 10 years, they yeah. make a bunch of money, and then they're done, or on do other stuff. Well, the, they had really good compound records, for one thing, right? And that creates its own sort of problems. Uh, it creates two problems. One, the size issue that actually is an issue. But on top of that, the the bigger problem that you get is if you get to really big size, so you do like 30% a year for 10 years, and then you do 20% a year for the next 10 years, people will say, oh, there it went down, you know? He's um, lost so, his touch. His, yeah, so it's not just, which is what Buffett said, that every decade has been worse than the one before. But uh, it's not just, so there's the actual problem of having too much in assets, obviously, that you're, it's hard to even outperform at all. But there's also the the curse of the record that you had in the past, you know, that that's sort of a thing with people saying athletes should retire at their peak, you know, even if they yeah. like it's sad to see someone who's a 400 hitter finish their career at 300. That's uh, playing pretty well. Uh, but yeah. it's just like, oh, they're not as good as they used to be. So do they have some responsibility to quit when they're at their absolute best, even if they're better than the average uh, person they're going up against, you know? I think people probably only remember to where you finished. So you could have like right. a tremendous career, for example. And then they're like, oh, but you know, he really peaked and then he was kind of forced into retirement. 
at least in this business, you know, I mean, I don't think people yeah. think about Michael Jordan as retiring with the Wizards or whoever it was. They think about his career with the Bulls. But for investors, if those last few years you're kind of forced out or you convert to a family office or whatever, that's mm-hmm. what people kind of remember you as. Yeah. And Buffett's created a thing with Berkshire, which I think worked out for him where he can get away from that, where it's just an issue of longevity and the performance of it as a business versus other businesses, you know, it as a stock versus other stocks, rather than a year by year comparison of his performance versus what it used to be. You know, I don't know that he would have been able to stick with it all this time if he was getting Morningstar ratings every year. Oh, it's now a four star fund that, you know, Buffett has because he's not as good as he was, you know, last whatever. Um, He's moved that to a different way of thinking about his performance. And that's allowed him longevity, I think, especially for the last 25, 30 years would have been really difficult, you know, to do it in any other way since the mid 90s, probably. That's really interesting. We've spoken a lot about how. Because this uh, person that asked this question, he said, love all your advice on profitability ratios and trends of companies and stuff like that. So to me, he's talking about the math, right? And when you read a lot of these write-ups, there's always the math that's involved. I mean, do you think when Buffett's reading a 10K, he's like compiling a database of like return on invested capital and like, um, you know, all these margins and doing all these fancy different calculations in his head, I mean, like a DCF or all these no. other calculations that a lot of people like to do. I mean, and you have said before, you're like, well, he didn't have to post it anywhere. He wasn't doing write-ups. He may have talked right. to people generally about the business, but he wasn't doing all of that. Uh, no, I don't think so. Because I think he, the way he thinks about investing, it's so like real life as opposed right. to a formula in Excel. Yeah. I think the sad thing to say to people about this is when he talks about like accounting as the language of business, something like that what people may not realize is um, the, you know, someone who's really good at chess, uh, the thing is always like, oh, they're thinking all these moves ahead and they're thinking this one and this, and they're doing this. And that's not really true. At a few points, they have to do that where they have to do all those calculations. But someone who's great at it is just seeing immediately, oh, you know, what's odd about this situation is the bishop is here instead of here, where normally in these sorts of structures, you would be over here. That's a weakness here. If I do this, they can quickly check little tactical things of the next few moves if they need to. But what they're really doing is they have so much experience that they've seen a hundred games that are really similar to this one. And yet this is pretty typical, or this is something atypical. I got to focus in on this. And they see the kinds of patterns over time that way. Right. Um, in slow motion, and with an Excel sheet and stuff, we could all sort of do the same things. But what we're talking about is seeing very quickly these things and understanding the importance of them. So I think he, I think he reads a 10K, reads a, a financial statements and things like that more like someone reads a situation than we might think. So what does and, that mean? Well. Okay, so we talked about movies and things like that, right? With Netflix and all yeah. that. Okay, so anyone can watch a movie and can kind of say, oh, it was good or bad or whatever. But so let's say you're making a movie. The one thing that people who are involved in making a lot of movies could do that the average person probably can't is they can recognize where there's something off here, um, something that's not working that well. They may not be able to recognize how to fix it. Sometimes they might. But their kind of scan of it is comparing to so many different things that here's the part that feels like 
the area that we should be concerned about the risk of what's not working here. Um, and why is this different? What, what, how does this compare to other things I've seen and does it make sense? Right? So let's say Apple, right? So Buffett decides to invest in Apple. Why exactly does he do that? Well, he's looked at a lot of times before he sees the profitability metrics, right? But he doesn't just buy it based on those. Now he saw the profitability metrics with, um, we talked about Blackberry or something. Actually, in some ways, BlackBerry had numbers that were very good or similar in all sorts of ways to um, Apple. And he had seen lots of companies early on that did things more for other businesses, if we go back decades or for the government, that had really good numbers on all that. So what happened? Part of it is that we talked about like um, recognizing how important it was for people in his life, how much they cared about the product and how much they weren't willing to substitute. What's interesting is about that is the things that kind of clicked for him with that are things that were um, consumer behavior of people that he knew, you know, the psychological aspect of it, um, in ways that didn't have to do with the technology side. What he didn't do is go, okay, um, I think they have an advantage here that they're going to maintain about whatever tech things. He obviously started to think of it not in a tech way, but as something that was a consumer franchise that could continue even if the technology wasn't constantly superior to anything else or some advantage that way, but that there was a built-in um, bias towards for people towards what they already owned and that they would continue to go with that, you know, that, that um, loyalty to it. And so once he had that, then it's easier to see those profitability metrics and think about it as other companies that he's invested in, right? So now these, a lot of these things make sense together. And we try to do this when we look at the quick FS stuff, you know, here are the gross margins. How does this compare to totally other things? Say, okay, well, how does that compare to, how does this compare to a tobacco company? How does this compare to a commodity company? How does this compare to what kinds of margins and turns and all that are normal? He sees those things very quickly, obviously, because of certain things he says sometimes off, off, uh, offhand. Um, you know, we don't know how fast he's writing his letter and all that, but he, in certain lectures or where he's answering, so Q and A is not like prepared lectures or uh, or um, questions that he's asked by people. You can tell that he, for instance, knows the amount of invested capital in certain businesses and uh, turns like that uh, off the top of his head. Um, not that he's necessarily thought about it that way all the time, but he's aware of how much capital craft is using and what it would take, you know, how, how fast they'd have to turn things given the margins that they have. And, um, I, it's the relationship between them. That's really important and being able to read that and kind of understand what that means. Um, and then there's also, the other thing is not putting on a, uh, how do I put this? The, the, the thing like I gave with the chess example is a good one because a lot of times what people learn really early on is like, this is good or this is bad. So let's say a profitability ratio or something like that. There'll be, this is a really good margin over this level. That's a positive check mark. Like you have a checklist, like you say, okay, check. With the chess example, that's not what they would do. They don't just, any computer can tell them, okay, you're winning or not you're expected to have an advantage from this point on or whatever. What you can do really quickly scanning something is, okay, what are the advantages that you have here? What are the disadvantages? 
when you understand a situation, that's the same thing. Like I was saying about the movie thing or whatever, what you're saying is you, you have a read of the situation that is not just good or bad. If you have a lot of experience making movies or something, you don't just go, well, this is the checklist you need for all movies to have. This is the bad things you never want to put in a movie. This is the good things you want to put them in. If I put all the good things in, people will love it. They don't think of it. They, no one would think that way. Chess things the, the same way. They would think I have at this point, I have certain advantages and disadvantages of what's happening here. There's good and bad things, strength and weaknesses and things to watch out for. And there's a lot of stuff I can ignore. That's like one of the biggest things is there's a lot of noise I can just completely ignore because it's very typical and I don't have to worry about it because I'm used to dealing with all these situations. So I've seen this a million times. It's not a problem, not something to obsess about. Um, the problem that I have a lot when people talk about the very uh, numerical things that can almost work like a checklist is like, is this a good gross margin? Um, and is that like a positive or a negative or whatever? Um, they never say this has a really high gross margin. So that's a problem, but a really high gross margin can potentially be a really big problem, but a really low gross margin can also be a problem. It depends on the situation that you're in and the offsetting benefits that you can get from that by understanding the overall model of what you think is happening here. Um, cause people always ask questions like say insurance things. So that's maybe a little more uh off uh it's a little more abstract so that it might help um they'll say do you like insurance companies that have really low expense ratios and really high loss ratios or really low loss ratios and higher expense ratios and the answer is i don't like one or the other better it's a business model built around that so for the car things that we talk about absolutely you want the really low expense ratios um it's a commodity type product that you have that way in other cases, though, having a lot of pricing power or having a better ability to understand something in a niche that you can have better loss experience than others um, could be the really big advantage. But I don't see how you could take that and apply it to Geico's business. You can't take that thing that works for that niche um, property and casualty company that does this, these very specific lines and say, okay, that's going to work as a business for auto insurance or homeowners or whatever, you know? There's, it's a business model that works for them. Tandy can't take the Amazon business model, nor can Amazon take the Tandy business model. It's not practical. If you did, you would lose everything. You would either not produce sufficient earnings to keep growing, um, or you would just lose out and be devastated by competition, you know? Um, so understanding those kinds of things, what the patterns look like that they're used to seeing, I think is really, really helpful. And I think it's something that Buffett probably sees really fast. And we talk about that when we try to say, here's to slow it down for people and say, here's how you could do this calculation. So the most infamous example for me is doing the one of, um, I would always talk about the coefficient of variation. So, you know, the relative. Why is that infamous? Well, because it's a very, it's a very highly technical thing, right? It's like, why am I calculating this? My point was you can do it in Excel, so it's easy. It doesn't even matter which formula you choose. They won't be off by that much of different things because <laughs> people always wonder which ones. It doesn't matter. Um, but my point is you can see it with your – we do it with QuickFS. You can see it with your eye. Yeah. People don't believe yeah, me, but can. you look at a few businesses this way. I'm not going to confuse something that has a, uh, a um, uh, variation of 1 with something that has 0. 0.3. Over time, I know what 0. 0.3 looks like. 
and how low that is and what one looks like and how high that is. Um, you don't confuse Costco with, uh, with, with Micron, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you could use these numbers as well. Like when we talk about doing these snap judgments, I mean, you could just tell, even if you're not familiar with the company, you can learn a lot about it just by what the numbers tell you, right? Pretty early on. Okay. So very low gross margins, very low operating margins, mm -hmm. high return on equity. Right. What's that something that's telling you right off the bat? Okay. They turn over their inventory a lot. Yes. And I mean, there's, there's other things that they're telling you that they're absolutely telling you that, but they're also telling you with the return on equity, for instance, and return on assets that you can see their return on invested capital, that they're earning a lot, earning a lot to reinvest in it, but they're not earning so much that people who have a less efficient business model can come in and really uh, compete well with them. They're keeping it low enough. See, some people would say, isn't it great to have something like Games Workshop, right? Their returns and stuff. Um, okay. It's great if they can lock in all their players, right? So, it, you know, we can, for instance, look at return on invested capital. Or return on assets is kind of the most brutal one. So if you have an incredibly high return on assets, this gets into technical things of accounting. But it's the easiest judge that, that there's really a lot of um, uh, profit pool for the taking right like like there's a big gap that you're capturing a lot of profits for yourself that way uh, other things could be financial leverage and whatever but that will never happen with return on assets so if you're having numbers this high these are incredibly high numbers and they're backed up by return on equity and return on invested capital that we're seeing uh a 40 some percent return on invested capital which you know in the uk what maybe works out to 30 percent or something um after taxes is just really really high right and it's a big enough business, you know, they're making, what do we say, uh, that's in pounds, 150 million. So like, you know, you're making $200 million a year plus um, that it should attract a lot of competition. So when you see this, you're focused on, okay, the business is good enough. I know that right away. It can grow and all of those things. Um, it can fund whatever growth it needs. But you're now asking, okay, how do they keep this, Right. And it's different because we see with the gross margin, for instance, they've sustained, I mean, it's, it's declined at times, but they've sustainably kept it extremely high. So we know it's not some sort of commodity type shortage situation. It's something specific to that business that way. And so now we're thinking about it the way we think about BlackBerry or something, right? BlackBerry had a time where they had that kind of dominance. And you say, okay, well, does that last or does it not? Is this a BlackBerry or is this an Apple? You know, you start to compare it to those sorts of things about the longevity of its advantages. But... You know that it's a huge profitable advantage that it has. It has a big um, moat, but it has, it has high returns on capital, but it um, in the present state. And then it's company specific, or at least it's specific in the sense that uh, if maybe there could be a few companies doing this and they each keep all their players, but it's not something that the whole industry, that you could have a whole industry where everyone's earning these kinds of returns. It's not, um, it's not like, in one year for lumber or something, everyone could make a lot of money and then the next year they can't. Uh, it has to be something that's specific to like, we said, like a moat. There has to be some sort of lock-in, something that is specific to the company, the way that it was with, with BlackBerry, for instance, where they had this product that everyone loved and that they were addicted to. Um, but then we would worry about the durability, right? Because there's this big invitation to compete with them. If people see this, you see this uh, record, you're going to say, oh, we should get into this business, right? Mm -hmm. um, or we should buy it, you know, 
if it was at a reasonable price or, or whatever. But obviously, if you're Hasbro, if you're whoever who thinks of themselves as being in this kind of thing, then you think, well, why are they making all of that money in, in that small business compared to what I make? I don't have those margins, you know? Do you think it's tough because it's like, okay, well, well, you know, you don't want a low enough return equity, but you also, on the other hand, don't want it to be too high as well because of competition and the profit pool and everything like that. It's like, where's the the middle ground um, where it makes sense? Yeah. So it de- the answer is it depends. Um, it really depends on your understanding of the strategy there and what your future is going to be. There are businesses, honestly, it, it's not nice to say it, but where the best thing to do would be to squeeze your customers as much as possible for a brief period of time in which you understand that you will not survive for that long. Um, your product might not survive. Um, your competitive position will not survive. And it makes sense to squeeze them in to take the money out and to put into something else. Um, there are some examples I can think of that where parts of an LBO did that. They understood that and they applied that approach. Um, and they let it die. They, they, they milk the cash cow and, and do it that way. Um, there are others in which you try to last in your industry, um, by having the most, you know, dominance that you would. Um, we've talked about that, like with Amazon, that's a good example. Um, but you can also harm your industry to make it for the worse later. And that's something to be careful about. Um, everyone talks about with the big companies, like um, getting all of the market share and getting the total addressable market. But total addressable market is not profit pool. So you can obviously end up in a situation in which you have a huge amount of the total addressable market, but you don't convert a lot of it into profit. The whole industry doesn't. And you can have others in which the industry does a very good job of converting to profit. Either possibility, either situation is possible. I mean, um, if we compared, I'm sure no one has these statistics, but if you compared um, total addressable market at various times with profit pool, in um, the U.S. tobacco industry, the it's not that uh, for long periods of time it, the relationship wouldn't be that close. There's a period in which there's a huge market and not gigantic profits. There's a later period in which the market is much smaller and the profits are much higher because of the structure of the industry. Um, so you want to end up in a situation in which you have a lot of profit available for you. And we talk about that all the time because the thing that worries me about that is with the last 10 years or whatever, a lot of the examples people gave of these great big giant companies that conquered the world and everything, um, they make their money off advertising. They never figured out, they never had to figure out their business model because they just said, let's, let's get all the audience. And then later we'll, we'll make it off advertising. And that's not a new technology idea. That's been the idea of media since, you know, the beginning that's been something that's worked really well whether you were launching a magazine radio um tv whatever um we're talking about going back 100 years and more yes everyone realizes that if you get a big audience somewhere you can eventually without even having to do much work yourself other people will tell you you know i want to advertise here and and i'll tell you how i can do it and whatever and some of these have very sophisticated programs for that now and that's helped them for years and years, obviously, because you can see with something like Meta, the the revenue growth has far exceeded the audience growth. I mean, so it's constantly improving optimization of, of advertising for a decade. But this was not a, you know, it's risky that you might not get to that point. It's risky that it could fall apart. 
but this isn't a controversial business model that if I have a huge audience spending a lot of time there that someone will pay to put pay to reach that audience. That's kind of one of the oldest and most classic business models that there is, um, which is different from some other things, you know, uh, you know, I don't know that that works. Some of the other businesses we saw later in the, in this, um, phase of all these tech companies is harder to figure out because it may have some of the same advantages. Let's, let's just say Peloton has the exact same advantages as these things. I have no idea whether it would or could have or whatever, but say it did have all the same advantages. How do I turn that into a lot of profitability later? I could do it, you know, that there's, there's ways of doing it, but we've kind of got to think harder about this, about how we extract that value. Um, same thing when we did the fin, we talked about fintech things and, and, um, I mean, I saw some things that are insurance things, you know, when you get to the state where you have a huge part of the market, how much profitability is there in it? There's a lot of profitability for a media outlet. Um, but there might be less for some other things because even when you get to that point, you don't have all that much room to extract a lot of profit before someone else can take your customer. What's the most dominant company you've ever seen? Well, <laughs> there are some, Hmm. I mean, it depends. The most dominant would be a really narrow niche would have to be. So there are some companies that are really, really dominant and really narrow niche. Um, there are, I mean, like a so, Hunter Douglas. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, there's ones that are more narrow than that. Uh, so I guess generally I would say the most dominant thing, and it can be broken, but the most dominant thing is to be the standard. So in which you control the standard. So if you control the standard, then that's the best business that there is. Um, okay. So what does that mean? Well, like FICO, a FICO is the standard in a credit score. Anything that varies from that is still a credit score and it can be better or worse, but it's not, uh, FICO credit score. Um, well, rating agencies. We, yeah. Rating agencies are an even better example, but, uh, Dun and Bradstreet. I mean, I mentioned there was a GAO report about that and they basically said, uh, because the government was using the Duns, uh, so uh, an identification number that, that Dun and Bradstreet uses instead of using government ID numbers only it was using that. And the, the problem that some people had with that is that you're giving sort of a monopoly type situation to them. So the same way that we were talking about with the, uh, nationally recognized, what's it called? National recognized statistics organization, whatever the rating agencies, you know, that they included it in, in, um, basically gave it government, approval in a sense by using by incorporating it to something so same ex example is that some contractors and things were using a done needed to have a done in bradstreet number um so in a sense the government was mandating that you have this and then from that you could extract value from other things right um the answer to the 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 request that people had in government about it to investigate this was basically yes it's a monopoly yes we're helping to support it in a sense but it would be less convenient and more costly for us not to. So it's a standard that we all accept that way. Um, this can happen for a time with exchanges that we talked about or whatever, uh, stock exchanges. Um, that's your biggest advantage 
is to, your most dominant position is to have that because we talked about this. You said um, you tried using the Brave search engine, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever search they're using, I don't know. Yeah, it's their own search engine uh, versus Google. So you could investigate into that, into figuring out okay, how bad is it? And does it matter and everything? But the the biggest thing is that if they could just make, it's not even that the search for any of these things has to be all that good, but it's the problem that it isn't. It doesn't look like Google. If the immediate response answers at the top, even if it's Bing and it says there's a lot of it, um, results that it has, if the top five things don't overlap a lot with what you've been used to seeing the top five things for that kind of search in Google, then you're going, this is a non-standard uh, product, right? Yeah. So that's your best one. I mean, honestly, it's your best one. If it is... And it could be even just things, commodity things sometimes it is, whether it's chemical things or physical properties of things, where they'll mention it and you'll talk to them and they'll say, why exactly do they do this? And they say, you know, it it's known how it reacts with this exactly, what measurements you'll get using this. Um, and you would have to have some, there'd be some difference if you use something else. But a lot of times it's not, this is definitely the best way to do it. It's that, anyone who uses this will get the same answer. So if we all search and we all use Google, then we all can agree on what the answer is of what is the thing we should, the search results should be. Um, If there isn't one dominating it that way, then we can, it would be kind of silly to argue about what's the better answer. What's the, what was the correct search that it gave back, you know, Um, but we can all compare to a standard. And that's the biggest one. Cause then there's suspicion that your, your, your standard that the things don't match up to the standard and then that there's risks to that. And there certainly is. Um, but you have things like FICO, for instance, where all the customers get together to uh, create an alternative because they're fighting against your market power. And that will happen in any industry. There's examples we talked about before where a bunch of others will get together and lobby against you. Um, and that can happen. So there are, still threats that you would face. Um, and in some ways being more niche is helpful that way. And that's what an example of that is what happened with Netflix. Netflix did get a lot of market power to send in terms of having a large amount of the audience, but some of it, the suppliers are their competitors. And some of the things that happened over time made the, the suppliers more and more concerned about it and also proved that their business model could work. Once they started making money, you know, that proved that you could have a streaming service competing with them. So Netflix is very dominant in what it was doing, but, you know, now it's not. Now that was an unusual situation because the willingness that they had to take losses, all the services just been burning money. So there's a willingness to do that. I think from a safety perspective, the greatest safety usually is not so much complete dominance but that you're dominating something in which others aren't willing to um, take the market share from you. I think it's always What's a good example of that. Lots of small companies. It's true because there isn't enough um, profit pool for others to come in and take. Um, I also think we've talked about like mega projects and things that are a little more difficult to do that way. We like, you know, the one I always give as an example is BWX technologies. Um, it's uncertain that you'll be successful. You could lose a lot of money doing it. If you were successful, then you could get in a position where you make a lot of money. Um, 
I actually wanted to bring up BWXT today mm-hmm. uh, as it relates to the bargaining power. I mean, who holds the bargaining power with that situation? Is it the U.S. Navy or is it actually BWXT? Well, that's the issue. It's both of them. Um, so it's monopoly monopsony or bilateral monopoly, sometimes it's called. Um, there's one buyer and one seller. Um, it's mentioned in economic textbooks, microeconomic textbooks, but it's not taken very seriously as something that exists a lot in the real world. But it does in that case. Um, you're a public for-profit company facing off against uh, a government and probably a department, mainly a department of the government, uh, and one that may not be most incentivized to have the lowest budget possible. Now, if the government was a different kind of government and focused on different things, then um, maybe it would be different. But if you know, if you work in government in those parts with the interface with um, BWX technologies, you're mostly you're not there to get the lowest possible budget that you can have. You're there with a shopping list and a budget, basically, you know, a wish list and a budget, sort of like we talked about with John Wiley. If you're a library buying things from academic publishers, you basically have a budget and a wish list of what you want your library to be. You don't really have, I'd like my library, I'd like to save 5% across the board and uh, get the same, roughly the same um, selection. And that's what I'd say is true for the Navy. They're not really interested in let's um, reduce our cost by 5% this year, 5% next year, 5% the year after that. So there's less pressure that way. If you're if you're in a monopoly monopsy situation with Walmart, I think it wouldn't work out as well. I'd rather be negotiating with the U.S. Navy than Walmart. Okay, so like, what's a good example of that with Walmart? I mean, when you talk about the U.S. Navy, for example, I mean, this isn't a Hanes brand that so you could walk the aisles and be like, okay, we have about the same shelf space as like a Fruit of the Loom. So mm-hmm. how do you sort of figure all that out? Well, I mean, Walmart, for instance, has like. Uh, private label stuff, which would be close to the relationship we're talking about with BWX technologies. There's might be some alternatives, but they're so big that they run into this problem that they can't realistically test out others to take over for them. Um, Amazon's a good example somewhat because Amazon does this whole logistics thing that they do themselves. They also do different things with their different carriers and there's all sorts of reasons for why they might do that. But I think from the beginning or from early on with Amazon, um, part of that is they have to make sure that they're playing people off against each other because there has to be an awareness that if we Amazon could save money by depending more heavily on one carrier than anything else, um, but they would be in a really bad bargaining position and, and potentially a terrifically bad bargaining position because obviously any interruption would be blamed on Amazon. Um, so a short, brief um blackout, you know, strike type situation in which you're just denied service for a brief period of time um, would be effective in breaking them. You know, um, this Christmas, no one's getting anything because we're not going to deliver it for 15 days is enough to get whatever you want from Amazon if they have no other option of who to go to. So they know they can't do that. They have to play people off against each other um, and develop their own capabilities. So, you know, like I think the incentives for Walmart are to get down the prices. Um and even in terms of the function, that's kind of how the organization is set up. So that's why I would be careful about supplying Walmart, Costco, some other companies like that. So um, get down the prices. Now that really affects the customers. But what about their bargaining power with their own suppliers? I mean, I think at one point, weren't they 
fining their suppliers if they were like late to deliver or something like that? Yeah. So um, I think we talked about this with private labels sometimes. I, I think there's a trade off with the long term and the short term. Um, you often get a benefit from the short term to getting into places and going through things like uh, Walmart and these other large um, sellers. But I don't know how big the benefits are for some companies if you do that. Um, we have some examples that are pretty bad when they did it. So they had some pretty bad outcomes selling pet food through mass market, um, which destroyed the brands. There were some bad outcomes for uh, paint. Um, so there's some other examples of that where it probably would have been better if the brand tried to maintain its um, product positioning by not doing that by limited distribution that it had. But that's a risk too, because if you have really limited distribution over time, it becomes a problem. I mean, but we talked about Hunter Douglas. We talked about Luxottica. It's not accidental how those businesses developed. They realized this problem and decided we're going to structure the industry so that we're not sold through things like that. I mean, they predate to a significant extent the bargaining power of, to some extent, the bargaining power of Costco and, and Walmart and Target and Amazon. But they recognized that problem and they said, we've got to reshape the industry uh, aggressively to make sure we avoid this. Mm -hmm. And they did. Yeah. The idea of bargaining power is so interesting to me. And maybe it's not talked about a lot because there's no formula really to it. Um, but I mean, like we've spoken about before how you could go in any Whole Foods and you look at whatever is eye level in mm -hmm. the aisle and it's always Whole Foods brand, right? right. I have a, another example. I shop at Trader Joe's and I like this vegan butter and the vegan butter is always in the same spot. I'm not even a vegan. It's just, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And the other day when I was in Trader Joe's, I went to buy my vegan butter and guess what was in its place? A new Trader Joe's vegan butter, not right. the brand that I've been eating for the past few years. Mm -hmm. So I don't know this idea of bargaining power is fascinating because it's like, are you basically at the mercy of the supermarket? And if they want to carry your product, Yes. So well, like in that situation, who holds all the bargaining power would be Trader Joe's. Correct. Yes. So, I mean, once you become a large national brand, that's not the case. But yes, um, that's absolutely the case. And that's why they don't talk about it a lot, but that's why supermarkets could charge slotting fees. Um, that's why radio stations could charge to play your song. I mean, these, these things are either banned, illegal, um, not talked about, um, considered you know, something we'd, we'd rather not discuss and stuff. But yes, uh, a media outlet can do things, has a lot of bargaining power in whether you're able to access their audience. And shopping is the same thing. It's whether you can access their audience there. If you're something that they won't go somewhere else for, you are in a very weak bargaining position with that uh, uh, company. So... Let's give a really simple example, but you were talking about the butter thing. The really simple example is eggs, right? Um, they basically can determine what eggs they're going to sell there, and there's nothing you can do about it, and they can take away all of your market share for it. So um, you can't build up an egg brand that will be popular enough, beloved enough by people, that they are oh, cheap enough even, um, that it could ever matter that they're going to alter their shopping trip to make a special trip or almost a special trip to get eggs somewhere for that, right? Um, and so there's not, they, th that's something that's very possible for private label to do, but it's also something where they just have a lot of bargaining power. So you don't even need private label for it. Um, and also in the, on an ugly sense, right? Which is what I meant. Um, 
it also means that let's be honest about it. What is the, if we think about it, what is the best way to have a successful like egg business, for instance, um, if there's no rules in your country, uh, you know, it's to bribe the people who decide where it's going to be on the shelves. It's nothing else. It's not the quality of the eggs. It's not the, I mean, to a significant extent, it's not the cost that you have that way. If you have, if you live in a society in which there are these giant Walmarts and Targets and, and Costco's and all those kinds of things, um, if you're in one that's very fragmented, that's not true. It's a very hard way to do it. But if it's a very concentrated retail environment, that's the best way to do it or to partner with them or to prevent them from partnering with others or to enter into strategic relationships that you can have. Yeah. And it all, and in a way that's more obvious to people in uh, investing things, it's one of the reasons why it makes sense to bulk up horizontally, um, to merge with other things that are supplied through the same, Mm -hmm. to the, through, to the same um, stores. And significant, and that tends to trigger a wave of consolidation because if you have consolidation among the uh, just growth, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, when I say consolidation, I don't mean they don't have to merge with each other. But when you have the things that have happened with um, uh, groceries being in the hands of so many fewer uh, retailers, then the most logical thing is to merge your food companies together that sell through them and then to re- to sell off the parts that don't sell through them and, and all of that to split them off. And to make sure that you have as much power as possible with the distributor. We talk about movie things. You know, that was a big part of it in the history of that industry in the U.S. is things that were undertaken in movies and TV to prevent um, block distribution. So to have a vertically integrated way of distributing your products as a as a um, take it or leave it. This is our whole uh, lineup, right? So a big part of the antitrust stuff in the United States, just a little bit with um, TV, just who supplies TV networks, and to a lot with movies, who supplies movie theaters, was to prevent them from saying, here's our slate of 50 movies. You'll be buying one a week. Um, And you'll like it because we have a couple of giant hits in here. And you'll take the rest of them and you'll get one price for all of them, basically. Um, So that approach but that approach is part of why you merge things together it's part of why things like craft and png exist they know it they have a few very strong brands they have a lot of weak things and the really strong ones can be used to protect the weaker ones because the strong ones have bargaining power you know people say that all the time like that craft doesn't have bargaining power for everything they do they're they're you know there's not costco doesn't have unlimited ability to say you'll be buying Costco brand cream cheese. That's, you know, you can do that once or twice in certain product categories, but you're no longer, you you know, across the board, it would be hard to do that. Uh, If I can't get my Philadelphia cream cheese and I can't get my Heinz ketchup and I can't get my Coca-Cola, is this really a, a store? Is this a legitimate store anymore? Is this some sort of other private label thing that I go to? It's so, like death to a supermarket to do that. Yeah. So there's, so you can take one away and give me lots of other things. And overall, you know, for the whole basket, it works. And you can do that for limited times in your negotiations, just like cable systems would have these fights with different um, networks, you know, and you could black out one for a while, but you can't, you know, have an area where you've blacked out a bunch of different ones at the same time. You know, you can't operate a cable system where people say, oh, you, there's no way to get ESPN. You know, 
that's bargaining power that they have. It could be that there's no way to get ESPN this month because there's some fight and you go to the public and say, we're trying to save you money on your cable bill and whatever. You know, and Costco can do the same thing for a time. But it's clear that, you know, a bunch of product, it's clear that things like Tide and A1 and uh, Philadelphia cream cheese and, and Heinz ketchup and stuff have a bargaining power that other parts of the portfolio of these companies do not have and that it's combining them that protects a lot of the other things in them. If they were standalone companies, they still standalone businesses, they might not have the same economies of scale, but there'd still be a ton of bargaining power in the strong ones. I don't think that you get a lot more profitability from the strong products. What you get is a lot more from the weak ones. And then you also have economies of scale, like we talked about with on marketing stuff. But Are there any red flags that stick out to you as insufficient bargaining power when looking at companies? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about it. You know, payment terms is always a, an issue. It's always something that I read. So it's one of the things I mark up. You know, when I mark up a 10K, there's certain things I check where the language is normal and where it's not. Um, anything that tipped me off that there was different uh, payment terms, meaning that they were extending credit in a different way to people would, would concern me a lot. Um, different than the industry? Thing. Yeah, different than the industry. And just if even if the or that the industry itself behaved differently than other industries, anything that kind of seemed like they're incentivizing them with. A, a big fear of mine often is that the company is financing its um, customers. So, you know, if you want to grow big fast, let's say you're a public company, for instance, and the Wall Street is willing to... to um, let you issue stock and stuff. In many ways, if we said, okay, let's let's get big really fast, uh, the easiest way to do it, and Wall Street would pay attention and figure out that we're doing this, but the easiest way to do it would be for both our suppliers and for our customers, you know, to basically become their bank. Um, that's a really good way to grow our business versus others, especially depending on who our customers are. But if you've got some small customers for some things, you know, small business, for instance, if we're willing to really finance, you know, um, things that are one to five people shops, you know, that are like the tiniest of businesses and we're just giving them payment terms that others won't, uh, we could grow fast probably, um, for a time because we're willing to do that and others aren't. Um, and that would show up for a while, but it, that's, a problem for a few reasons. One is that it can be an indicator that, you know, you're not getting by on the strength of your product. Right. Um, that's what we always want to see, you know, in terms of evidence, which is a little different from bargaining power, but bargaining power is funny because I think a lot of times people say like, well, they have this wide margin or whatever. So they have bargaining power. Well, it's not just that they have bargaining power. It's also that they're using it then. What we want is the seize candy situation. We want to be able to recognize bargaining power in situations in which they aren't exercising the bargaining power. I've talked about this like with George Risk, where I thought George Risk could raise their prices, and they did after volumes fell dramatically. They didn't have any need to raise their prices when volumes were high. Uh, auto parts companies generally don't need to raise their prices when volumes are high. Where they'll give a pushback to you is if volumes are low. So if you're a car company, you say, well, now I think that my volumes are going to be lower for longer than I thought, um, you should expect that there's going to be some renegotiation of things. And that's important because if you, if you have a lot of bargaining power and they can't renegotiate with you, then you can more safely bring down your volumes. But if you don't have that, then you have to spread around some of the pain in the industry. Um, and it's more dangerous for you to do that. So, 
Um, I think those are somewhat, there's sometimes softer signs of that, um, that you can figure out about whether they can raise prices. Um, it, it's not all that hard. You know, I, I was dumb of me not to buy Games Workshop when there was a transition there, but I followed it for a while and thought that it had tremendous bargaining power and was a very interesting company. The way that it was being run at the time didn't promise a lot of growth and higher profitability and everything, but it did seem like there was the potential for that. And I think anyone could have recognized that. I don't think that was difficult. So what are your thoughts then on where you have sort of this legacy business that then gets a new CEO and is going to take the company in a different direction? Is that something that you think you would be interested in? Or is it different just because, well, maybe the future is not going to look a lot like the past and predictability is so important to us? But maybe if it's a legacy business that you know is profitable, generates a ton of cash, sort of like the Buffett quote, buying a business that is so good that any idiot can run it because right. you know one day will. But let's say there's a CEO that you're actually impressed with and they're going to try supercharging it. Yes. It depends generally on what they're going to try to change, right? What they're saying they're going to improve. So the most exciting thing would be if they come in and say like, this doesn't sound exciting, but it, this would be one of the best signs. They come in and they say like, we're going to improve our working capital. I, you know, then I would get really excited because they really are going to do that. These are things like that, they can, yeah, that they can see and that they realize they have this bargaining power. They realize they can make operation improvements. It's more within their own control. And it's something that can be targeted easily that way. There are other ones like we're going to introduce X percent of new products and get more of our sales each year from new products. And, and uh, you know, we'll have 30% of our sales will be products that have been released in the last three years. And um, it might work. It might not. Uh, it's harder to shift those kinds of things. I would be more worried about that. Um, I'd be much more worried about shifting marketing things. Um, in many ways, I'd be much more excited about operational improvements. And I think that marketing improvements are more difficult than people realize um, in an organization that's already fairly established. Um, you know, there was the book, um, Good to Great, right? And sort of one of the parts about Good to Great is there's actually not that many companies that make that transition from Good to Great. A lot are born great. And um, I think if I was looking for companies to make that transition from good to great, I would look for things that were already great from a product perspective, from a marketing perspective, um, from a importance to their customers, societal things, and were poor operational companies. Uh, the reverse is really hard. We're excellent operators, but we're terrible marketers. Let's you know make that shift to be successful in that way. Um, but that's usually the one that people get more excited about is the marketing thing because it's like, we'll introduce these new things and, you know, um, even in the example, I mean, they acquired stuff, the ones we were talking about, like Meta and um, and some of the others that got very big, Google, you know, with, with YouTube. Um, but actually a lot of their performance over a long period of time is not so much from launching new products and everything, but from becoming very good at um, the advertising businesses that they're in. And that's the part that they became better at than I would have ever guessed in the beginning. I'm not sure that they really became, I mean, actually I am sure they didn't launch a bunch of products or have a lot more things now than they, than I would have expected. Uh, if we were looking at them when they went public a decade ago, whatever uh, period you want to go back a long period, it isn't through a ton of product improvements and new product launches and new technological improvements. Um, yeah. 
that are customer facing. Yeah. I was going to say how much of uh, Google's revenue is still search. Yeah, I mean, you look at it and here we are, you know, how many years after this business has uh, been operating it. Of course, yeah, YouTube ads, Google network, um, all these different services are a huge part of their revenue. But the breakdown, I mean, more than half just eyeballing it is still Google search, the business that it was, you know, 20 plus years ago. Right. Mm-hmm. But what they've gotten better at, and this is, I think, where Buffett talks about uh, not buying Google when they knew about Geico. The the thing that he missed is how effective it was at advertising and how more effective it would get over time that way, which is very hard to do. We talked about this with Twitter. Um, when you have a large audience, but you don't know about the effectiveness of the advertising, it'd be hard to imagine how big it will get. Because it's easy to go, okay, well, the revenue is X. They're not really going to get all that much. I mean, Google recently, you're like, we're looking at Google search. Um, it's not like their search um, clicks and stuff have been going up all that much for a while. Uh, the engagement with it isn't up all all that much. Um, but the effectiveness of the advertising over time has gone up a, a bunch. And I think it's even more true for uh, Meta over their history. Um, that That's the part you might not have been able to figure out right at the beginning is like um, how effective it could be. Because the model that we had for that was was broadcast. I mean, Google's interesting that way. Google's basically a classified site business in terms of their their um, their search part of it for the most part. There's some stuff in here that's a little bit different that's being included. But, you know, that was the core thing in the beginning. It, it's effectively the kind of advertising you do on classifieds. Um, but it's more targeted. And we didn't have a large history of a gigantic... Uh, advertiser supported media company that was able to narrowly target advertising. Um, we knew from things you could look at that narrowly targeted advertising is much, uh, people are willing to pay a lot more for it. Right. But those were niche things. We knew about niche businesses that had these high ad rates and we knew about the giant businesses that had lower ad rates, but huge audiences. And here's something that combined the two. I had a tweet once that, for whatever reason, I still remember where it was saying it's it's better to buy into a business that basically was pr pretty much born great as opposed to transitioning or trying to transition from good to great. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, and then you also have the price thing, which is that the the transition for the good to great thing really works when you get a really attractive price versus sales, book, things like that something that wasn't operationally all that successful, but now they can do something smart with it. You know? So when people ask mm -hmm. about that, like um, I always say like price, well, you know, price to book doesn't really matter and all that, but it's not something that I focus a lot on, but of course, yes, if there's an insurance company or a bank that could be run better and it's price to book is less than one. Yes. This is hugely important information to know. Uh, uh, we've talked about car dealers, very important information to know if you're below a price tangible book of one and there's someone else in the industry that knows how to run you better then of course you're a valuable asset and you're more valuable than, than that price. Um, so that's where you can really move it. But yeah, I read a lot of write-ups where, you know, it's kind of an average price or whatever, but they're making this transition supposedly from good to, to being a great company. Um, those are hard. Yeah. Cool. Well, this will be part one to our bargaining power episode. We are over two hours now, so we will uh, do a part two 
next week. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you are joining us, be sure to check out all of our content. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. Uh, if you are listening to us on the podcast or Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts at, uh, hit the subscribe button. Leave us a rating and review. That goes a very long way for everything that we're doing here. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, we do have a hedge fund and we do run a separate managed accounts arm. Uh, reach out to me at andrew at focusedcompounding.com. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. And we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.